Good morning. morning. All right. So this morning we're going to be jumping back into the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 18 this morning. We've been going through the book of Acts in the New Testament, fifth book of the New Testament, verse by verse for some time now. And I'm excited this morning to be in chapter 18, looking at uh, when the gospel came to Corinth. And so as we jump in uh, this morning to this passage, I want to ask you a question real quick. What was your first job? What was your first job? Just think about it. It's rhetorical. Um, And was it a real job? Uh, The reason I ask is this morning, the title of the message is is Paul's Real Job. All right. Um, I love hearing about people's jobs that they've had. A lot of you and all of us sometimes, if you're of age to have a job, have had some very interesting jobs, and it's always fun to talk about that. So that'd be a good fellowship group icebreaker question, all right, uh, this week. So, But I read an article recently in the billfold.com where this author asked the question, the title of the article was, what defines a real job? And, and, and she says, it's, it doesn't matter whether it's babysitting, whether you have business cards, or whether benefits are provided. What defines a real job, this article says, if, you, if what you do makes you tired by the end of the day and makes you want to lay face down on the floor for an hour, then it is work. If the only thing you can think about after work is closing a computer and reading a book, then it is work. So that's how she defines a real job. But at the end of the article, she still can't quite define a real job, a real job. Why am I bringing this up? Because I want us to think about that this morning as we look at this passage in Acts where Paul, we find out, is a tent maker, kind of like his real job. Because whatever we mean when we say real job, sometimes I think what we do mean is that it's like when you work for someone or you work for a business. And we see that Paul does that this morning, a glimpse into Paul. And I think it's really helpful for us because sometimes we think um, that Paul, like, you know, he's untouchable. He's an apostle. He, God used him to write some scripture, and we subconsciously think that whatever is happening in his life or in these cats' lives in the book of Acts, it doesn't actually translate into our normal lives. And that can be an unhelpful direction of thinking. Let me read to you this quote from um, a book called Social Context of Paul's Ministry. It's a long quote, but I want to read it to you, and you'll see why. Far from being on the periphery of his life, tent making was actually central to it. More than any of us has supposed, Paul was Paul the tent maker. His trade occupied much of his time from the years of his apprenticeship through the years of his life as a missionary for Christ from before daylight through most of the day. Consequently, his trade in large measure determined his daily experiences and his social status. His life was very much that of the workshop of artesian friends like Aquila, Barnabas, and perhaps Jason, of leather knives and awls, 
of wearing oil, of being bent over a workbench like a slave and working side by side with slaves, of thereby being perceived by others and by himself as slavish and humiliated, of suffering the artesians, lack of status, and so being reviled and abused. I share this with you because this is a perspective. Now, that quote in the book that it comes from, that's not the Bible, but that's a perspective we often don't see when it comes to thinking about Paul, the tent maker, and what his life really may have been like. And so I want to read you the text, Acts 18, 1 through 11. In this text, you're going to see eight people mentioned. There's a lot of names. You're going to see five places mentioned. And you're going to see at the end a word, a divine word from God to Paul in a vision. There's a lot going on here. But from this text, here's what we're going to take away. Five outlooks of a tent maker and disciple maker. Five outlooks of a tent maker and disciple maker. Let's read the passage and then I want to say a quick prayer. Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Bow with me for a quick prayer. God, we thank you this morning uh, for gathering us together, Lord. We thank you for the freedom that we have uh, to worship you, to gather in this place, God. With this morning being the Sunday that we have sort of set apart to pray for the persecuted church around the world, Lord, we want to, Lord, lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who have less freedom than we do uh, to gather, to worship you, who perhaps have uh, in some ways less uh, provision, less safety, less security than us. Lord, we, we don't even see it as us and them. It's us. They are part of us. You have but one church, one body of Christ. And so God, we, we beseech you uh, to work in those hard places. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning in the book of Acts, God, would you just illuminate these truths to our minds and our hearts, God, and into our lives this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so we are here. We're in Acts 18, and we are in Corinth. I have um, been to Corinth, and so I want to personally welcome you to Corinth. You can see uh, it is a great blessing to have traveled there and been there, and I will be annoying you this morning uh, with some pictures. In fact, I skipped one by accident in my introduction, so we'll see if we can go back to that. When in Corinth, I saw, I didn't even know I took a picture of this. I took a picture of what would have been a little shop where a small business, like a tent-making business, would have been set up in the marketplace. You can see right there. I'm not even kidding. I took that picture on an iPhone, and then I was looking into things this week, and someone had that picture, the same one that I took on the internet, and said it would have been the tent-making in a shop like this. And I'm like, what? Anyways, and you can see that modern-day tent-making small businesses still sort of emulate the same architecture with their storefront. And so that is what's going on here. And so back to Corinth. We are in Corinth, and one, one, one scholar says it's fair to say that Corinth and Ephesus, which we're going to come to next, were the two most important cities visited by Paul in his missionary work as we follow it in the book of Acts. You know, when it comes to this place called Corinth, this was a profoundly strategic city. It was um, a place of religious uh, pluralism. It was a melting pot of worldviews. You had, as we saw in our passage, a synagogue, so you had Jews. It was in the Roman Empire, so there were certainly secular Romans. There was also emperor worship. There was Greek mythology of Zeus. There was a temple to Aphrodite, and all of her temple servants and temple prostitutes led to great sexual immorality in the city of Corinth that's addressed many times in First and Second Corinthians. So here we have this city. A melting pot of worldviews, you know, sexual immorality. It's a place of um, geographical uniqueness and significance. I want to show you uh, some pictures of that. So it is on what is called an isthmus. It's kind of hard to say that word, but it's actually kind of fun once you do it. Isthmus. So it's like I-S-T-H-M-U-S. So it's on a land bridge, a small strip of land that connects two large parts of Greece. And, and so, you know, what happens with an isthmus is you, you either find a way to go through it to kind of cut across it, or you have to go all the way around. So let's just think for a moment of some very famous isthmuses um, in the world. Do you know? Uh, one would be Panama. And so it connects South and North America. And so what do we do? We cut the Panama Canal through it. It's a great feat of engineering. Another one would be the Isthmus of Suez that connects Africa and Asia. And they cut the Suez Canal through there so that people don't have to go all the way around Africa to get somewhere in a ship. It's strategic. And you know this is important because recently, when the Suez Canal was blocked by some large barge, um, what happened? Yeah, we didn't get our Amazon Prime packages in two days. And so this is real life here. And what I'm telling you, though, is that the, the city of Corinth was on an isthmus that connected two big parts of Greece. And to go from one part of the world where Jerusalem and Turkey are to this other part of the world where Italy is, it was helpful to cut through, cut across this isthmus. And so they made the Corinthian Canal. And you can see a picture of that here as well. 
And on the, you know, there's the Corinthian Canal, and you can see a carnival cruise ship coming through it. It's really amazing. Now, in full disclosure, the Corinthian Canal was not made until the 1800s. So Paul did not see the Corinthian Canal. But at the time of Paul, they actually had something genius. They would take ships out of the water and roll them across the isthmus and then back into the water so that they could take advantage of this shortcut. But my point is this. It's a geographically very strategic place. It's a place of business. It's a place of wealth. Actually, when I was visiting there, I actually met some guys. Uh, I went there by myself. And I was just there, I had a rental car, and I met some guys that were doing the same thing. These two guys, David and Ben, they're from Germany. And uh, I'm still friends with them. I texted them, told them to tune in, watch the sermon. I was going to show a picture of them. Hey, guys, um, David, I'm sorry you lost your, you had your laptop stolen at that busy restaurant. It was great meeting you guys. But they took some pictures of me so that I could show you guys what Corinth looked like. But uh, move on from them. Don't get them off the TV now. So um, here's the last thing about Corinth. They were very well known for the Isthmian Games. And so like the Olympics, every four years, the Isthmian Games were every two years. And this was a very well-known, huge deal from 582 B.C. all the way until the 4th century. And these were, were like Olympic Games. Men and women participated in them. And um, this was going on in Corinth. Why is this significant? Think about it. You ever heard of the Olympic Village where everyone like lives in this sort of like portable pop-up place? Same thing. Thousands of people converging on a city for the Isthmian Games. Where are they going to live? Tents. Camping world. You know, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, we got you covered. Like, that's what's happening. And so it was opportunistic. It was providential to be there with that skill. And it's really amazing, actually, just just to kind of think about God's word, because in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this to the Corinthians. Let me read it to you. Do you not know, he's writing back now to this church in Corinth that he's starting in this passage we're studying today. He writes back to them, he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way so as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, pause, what's he talking about? The Isthmian Games. He's talking about what every person in Corinth grew up knowing all about. It's really cool to see this in God's word. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And so this is Corinth. That's what's going on here. Paul's rolling into Corinth in Acts 18. And so now I want to move into the five outlooks of a tent maker and disciple maker. And the first one is this, confidence in God's sovereignty. Confidence in God's sovereignty. So looking now at verse two, it says, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome And he went to see them. So confidence in God's sovereignty. Why why do I say that's the point? Well, all right. So in this verse, Luke is telling us why people are where they are. He's like Claudius. That's the emperor of Rome. That's the Roman emperor. He had kicked all the Jews 
out of Rome. And actually, history um, shows that this is definitely true. Um, There's a historian that wrote in his Life of Claudius that the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of, and he misspells Christ's name, he says, Crestus. And so he banished them all from Rome. But that's from a history book from that time. And so this is true. This happened. So Jews and Christians were kicked out of Rome by Claudius. And Luke is telling us that's how Aquila and Priscilla got to Corinth. They were kicked out of Rome. Okay. Why do I focus on this? Well, because you got to remember, we're not the characters in the story. Luke is writing Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the early church and then, by extension, to us. We're not Paul. We're not the characters in the story. We're the church receiving this letter. So we're in the reader perspective. And why am I pointing that out? Because what do we know as we pull back and look at what's happening? We know that God is sovereign. Yes, Aquila and Priscilla, they left Rome um, because Claudius kicked out the Jews and Christians. That was not their plan. Claudius did that. Yes, they probably chose as their plan B to go to Corinth because of their trade of tent making and the need for it because of the Isthmian games. That was a good plan. That was a good plan that they came up with. Aquila and Priscilla probably felt like they were not where they were supposed to be. And they probably felt discouraged sitting in that little tent making shop, like powerless checkers on the checkerboard of Emperor Claudius. However, we as readers, as Christians, we know verses like Proverbs 21 that says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We believe in a sovereign God who's all-powerful, who has this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, right where he wants them to be. Is that not also true in our lives? Whatever feeling of discouragement, of powerlessness, of plan B-ness that we're facing, can we not also be confident in God's sovereignty? Outlooks of a tent maker and a disciple maker. The first one is confidence. The second one is curiosity. Curiosity. Asking, what is God doing that I'm not seeing? Again, verse 2. We'll look at, I just want to read verse 2 again and then go into verse 3. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Curiosity. Aquila and Priscilla, they wanted to be in Rome, but no doubt they made their strategic plan, their plan. Aquila is like, you know what? Priscilla, hey, babe, it's all good. I know Claudius kicked us out of Rome. But I've been really thinking, I've been talking with some people. I've got a plan. 
It's the best plan. We're going to go to Corinth because we can make tents there. We can make it big. This is going to be entrepreneurial. Small business is going to be awesome. And, and like Priscilla's like, cool, let's do this. So they go to Corinth. And I'm just saying that was their plan. That's what they were doing. And I'm sure it was hard. I'm sure it was stressful. And it was actually a really good plan. And sometimes that's the best we can do is make our best plan. It was a good plan. That's what they were doing. But what was God doing? What was God doing? Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Curiosity. Asking the question, what is God doing that I'm possibly not seeing? When Achilla and Priscilla learned the trade of tent making at an early age, perhaps even in childhood, here's the thing. God knew about this day. He had it planned. When they would be in a little shop in Corinth and they would meet Paul. When someone in Rome shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with Achilla and Priscilla and led them to become Christians before they came to Corinth, so that when they came to Corinth, they were tent makers and Christians. When someone was prompted to share the gospel with them in Rome. God already knew about, he already planned this day when they would meet Paul. When Claudius expelled them from Rome and they came up with their best plan to go to Corinth, God had this day planned. Their relocation plans are being strategically used, unknown to them, but known to us as readers by the Lord to advance the gospel to see the first church get born in Corinth. And this is all great. It's actually really cool, right? It's great. But listen, we have to see these things in our lives too. That's the application. Instead of just lamenting, where God has us, or only focusing on our plans and our plan Bs, we can be more curious. We can have a curious faith. We can ask God, God, what are you doing that I'm not seeing? Five outlooks of a tent maker and disciple maker, confidence, curiosity. And now three, calling. Calling. Prioritizing ministry, paycheck or not. Calling. Paul had a calling. So look again at verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, that was Paul's real job. That was his trade. That was his skill, his profession. He stayed with them and did what? What did Paul do? He worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So, so let's think about this for a moment. We're talking about calling. What did Paul have and what did he not have when he got to Corinth? First, what did he not have? Here's what he did not have. He did not have a church to host him or support him financially. He didn't. In other words, there was not a staff position. There wasn't even a church. So there was no staff position. He did not have that. What else did he not have? He was not, he did not have his ideal team. In fact, we'll see them come in verse five, whether that whether they were ideal or not, I don't know, but he doesn't even have that team. 
he's alone. He does meet Achilla and Priscilla, but he just met them. I mean, he doesn't have his team. What else does he not have? Again, just looking at what he doesn't have. He doesn't have support from other churches yet. He doesn't. It says in verse 5 that they come, his team comes and they bring with them some support. But he doesn't have it in verse 4. He hasn't completed his fundraising, I guess you could say. He doesn't have that. He also did not have the freedom to be a sophist, which is like a paid public speaker, you know, in the ancient world. He didn't feel that would be right. He also didn't feel it would be right to come under a patron, which was a thing in the ancient world also. But it's basically the same thing as getting a grant where you kind of feel beholden to the grant bestower. He didn't have these things. He had a calling. He had a burden to reach people for the Lord, but he didn't have these things. These things that we would maybe say might be really important. And he would say that too. What did he have? He had a usable trade of tent making. He had a calling from the Lord to minister the gospel. And he had providentially been guided by the Lord to encounter Aquila Priscilla, two new Christians that also were tent makers. What we see here from this point and from these verses is that Paul did not do ministry only when he was paid financially to do it. Paul did not also wait for the perfect circumstances to do ministry full time. No. He assessed, he adapted, and he took action. He was a tent maker and a disciple maker, not a tent maker or a disciple maker. Now, here's what I'm saying here. I do not want to in any way dilute the unique calling of a man or woman called to what we call vocational ministry. I'm right there beside you. I would never want to water that down. That is a thing for sure. Praise God. However, I do want to say this to all of us this morning. I want to say this to you. We are all called to ministry. If you're a believer, God has called you to ministry. You, I'm talking to you, we are all called. We are all gifted and we are called to ministry. Whatever we say, however we talk about the word calling, Christianese, I'm called, I'm not called, are you called, are we called, whatever. Forget all of it. Biblically, we're called, we're gifted. We're called. Ephesians 4.12 says that God has given leaders to the church to equip the saints, that's us, for the work of, do you know, ministry. We're called. And so, again, not to dilute those who are full-time, of course, amen. Some, out of all of us, we're all called, some work hard to make their living from doing full-time, let's call it secular work and then work hard in ministry in their other time. While others, the smaller minority, work hard at doing full-time evangelistic and church work, and they make their living through the financial support of fellow believers. Both work hard. Both are called. God provides for both. Most get their paychecks wired to them from 
the bank account of heaven through other companies. While a few get their paychecks from a church or a ministry. All the resources belong to God anyway, and he provides in different ways for all of his children. He cares for his children. But again, we are all called. And that's the point here. Calling, prioritizing ministry, paycheck or not. That's what we see Paul doing. The practical differences between a lay person and a professional minister is what? The biggest practical difference is what? Do you know? I'll tell you. It's just time. It's just time. That's it. It's not calling. It's time. The difference is not seminary training, although we would never want to devalue that. It's time. It's not calling. It's not seminary training. It's not, uh, it's not this. It's not, oh, well, uh, it, the, one of the differences is that like, a pastor doesn't actually know how to work. You know, like silly old pastor, just kind of knows some Greek and Hebrew, probably can't even like paint or sweep. Um, that's not it. Paul worked hard with what he had, and he got to work. And like each of us, you know, he was called. And at this time in his life, at this time, at this juncture in his life, verse 4, he found a job for Sunday through Friday. And then on Saturday, which was the Sabbath, he did ministry in the synagogue. And so I think it's a challenge to us. How might we best emulate what we see being held out here as an example and be people who prioritize ministry in our lives? Paycheck or not. Ministry is not a calling. It's, a jo- or it's not a job. It's a calling. I live downtown. And I often get like advertisements that you can come live downtown. And you can... Live, work, and play in the same place. Okay. But um, as Christians, we're looking to live, work, and minister. And then maybe play too. I mean, we're not against hobbies here. But I think it's a challenge to us. You know, I once asked um, a guy who worked for one of my mentors that I greatly revered. I asked him, can I kind of pull you aside and ask you, what, what is it that has made him so effective? And he said, without hesitation, his hobby is the kingdom of God. His hobby is the kingdom of God. Calling. So confidence, curiosity, now calling. And now number four, clear conscience. Knowing I have not withheld the truth about Jesus. Verses five through eight. So here, look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived, now pay attention, this is a shift in the story. When Silas and Timothy, that's Paul's team, when they arrive from Macedonia, it says Paul now, so now Paul is occupied, like full time, occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So there's a shift here. Paul goes from tent making Friday through Sunday, or Sunday through Friday, ministering on Saturday, to now being occupied with the word when his team gets there. Well, what happened? 2 Corinthians enlightens us. It says in 2 Corinthians, I'll read it to you, it'll be on the screen. I robbed other churches. He's speaking like jokingly here. I robbed other churches. Let's hope he didn't like actually rob churches. That'd be kind of weird. Um, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He's saying this to the Corinthians. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. Talking about tent making. 
For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That's verse 5. We just saw that. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. All right, so keep reading. Verse 6. And when they, that's the people in the synagogue, as Paul begins full-time, focused on the word, when those people in the synagogue, it says, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Whoa. All right, first of all, it says he shakes his garments out. That's kind of intense. Um, I don't know. It just kind of feels like, and then he's like, your blood be on your own heads. It's kind of intense. I, I think we can uh, understand this, though. When we think about Jesus told his disciples, when you go to a town and they won't listen to you, he said, shake the dust of that town off your sandals. In other words, it's like, I'm cleaning off my shoes of the dust of your streets. I want nothing to do with you. I'm moving on. Okay. Well, I think what Paul's thinking here is like, well, I'm still planning on staying in town. So I still might get dust on my sandals. So what's another way I can communicate to you guys that I'm not coming back to the synagogue? What's he do? He's like, just starts shaking out his garment, you know? He's like, I'm not coming back. It's crazy. And then he's like, uh, you know, your blood be on your own heads. I mean, it's so crazy. And it kind of feels like they cheated, and Paul grabs the ball. He's like, I'm not playing with you guys anymore. I'm going to another court. And, and like, but that's not it. It's not petty at all. Paul's being very Old Testament with them. In fact, he's almost, like, they know what he was saying. In Ezekiel 33, God says to Ezekiel the prophet, Son of man, speak to your people, and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land... And the people of the land take a man from among them and make him a watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, their blood shall be upon their heads. So Paul's not being petty at all. He's being Old Testament. He's saying, listen, my conscience is clear. I've not withheld the truth at all from you guys. I have been a faithful watchman. In view of the coming judgment of God and the good news that God has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior, I see all of that clearly. And I'm, I've told you people about Jesus. And my conscience is clear. And I've been a watchman. And your blood is on your own heads. It's powerful. What does he do in verse 7? Look at it. It says, And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Watch this. It's amazing. His house was next door to the synagogue. Uh, this is like the first church split, where like the church just like rents the building right next door. They're like, we'll just start here. Can you just imagine this? Like right next door? So Paul's like, hey, put the sign out where people will see it when they're coming to synagogue. It's just like really, really interesting. And then verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, make a note of that. Who The ruler of the synagogue is like the guy who's leading. He's like, let's sing this song, everybody. Let's read this scroll. Like the leader of the service, the ruler of the synagogue, where he was just rejected, opposed, and reviled. Who would have been the most unlikely person to come to faith? 
that person. So verse 8 says, The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. I don't know if, there's so much here. I mean, you could say, you could say that like Paul's willingness to not withhold truth and be bold and then even leave, that God honored that. And only after he left and really just trusted God with the results, God then brought awesome results. I don't know. What an amazing turn of events. You know, here's the thing. We never know when a Crispus, the most unlikely person, may really be reflecting on the truth claims of Christ. And so we better not say no for them. We want to have a clear conscience. We want to not withhold the truth of the gospel from people. We want to be a faithful watchman as judgment draws closer. Clear conscience. So we have confidence. We have curiosity, a curious faith. We have calling, clear conscience, and now finally, courage. So verse 9 through 11, courage, staying put with God's promised presence and protection. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul on uh, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now we know that Paul was afraid. He was afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, I don't know. Maybe like because he, they chose to go right next door to the synagogue with their new church thing. Um, and he's thinking, maybe we're too close. Maybe we're just too close. Um, maybe he was afraid because the ruler of the synagogue just became a Christian. And he's thinking like, I don't know. That, that feels, it, it, we might have a target on our backs. They opposed him. They reviled him. He was afraid. We know he was afraid. In 1 Corinthians, he, t- he writes to the Corinthian church, the same people. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here it is, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul was afraid. And, you know, just like the passage we studied last week in um, 2 Timothy, where Paul was telling Timothy not to be afraid, Paul fought against fear too. And God had to speak into his heart with a vision telling him, Paul, don't be afraid. And for some of us, that might be encouraging this morning because maybe we always feel like Paul's yelling at us, telling us not to be afraid. Well, here's God yelling at Paul, telling him not to be afraid. Not yelling though. You know, it's more like encouraging. Um, But verse 10, God continues. He says, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Think about that. There's an echo here of so many rich verses from the Old Testament when God told Moses at the burning bush that he will be with them. When God told Joshua when they were about to take the promised land, be strong and courageous, I will be with you. The calling of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, Jesus, and the great commission to the disciples. Like this is how God talks to us. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be present with you. I'm going to protect you. 
And I know this is a unique revelation from God to Paul, and we're not to take it and say, you know, put it on a Hallmark card and say that's for us today. So some of it might be unique to Paul. Let's just think about that for a second. God does, though, promise to be with all of us if we know the Lord, if we've put our faith in Christ. He promises to be with his people always. That gives us courage. God hasn't said to anyone here this morning that I know of that no one will attack you to harm you. I mean, you know, he said that to Paul. We just saw that in this verse. That was just for Paul, though. But we all can claim Psalm 118, which says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you're in Christ, that is true for you. God also has not said to us this morning, he hasn't said this to us. He hasn't said, hey, um, Fellowship Raleigh, uh, stay here forever. I have many people in this city that are sovereignly predestined, but yet to be converted. I mean, like, we think that's probably true, but he hasn't said that to us directly like he did to Paul. But we do know that the 1.5 million people in our city, the 40,000 college students, are all made in the image of God. And that he, according to scripture, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. And so courage, fear is there, right? Courage is staying the course and moving forward in the presence of things that make us fearful. What helps us to do that is the presence and protection of the one who is greater than all our fears. And so what happens? What does Paul do? Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so I'll close with just a quick encouragement. I think... Um, obviously, we had some alliteration this morning. Every point started with a C. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to turn that off. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no. But, but maybe it's helpful, actually, to, to help us remember something that maybe is really needed. Confidence in the sovereignty of God. A curious faith. God, what are you doing? What are you doing here, God? Calling. I don't have to get paid to feel called. I'm called. Clear conscience. God, I want to be a watchman, faithful. Courage. God, what am I doing? Why am I so afraid? You are with me. You will protect me. And I think it's just really encouraging too to see Paul move from tent maker to disciple maker, you know, seamlessly as. The situation requires it. And I wonder if his ability to do that was bound up in his identity, not being found in his work or in his ministry title, but an identity as a child of God who is called. And how encouraging is it this morning to see how sovereign God is? Oh, yes, he orchestrates Aquila and Priscilla to be there and Paul to meet them and everything to happen. And he also says to Paul, hey, Paul, I have many people in this city 
whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, written before the foundation of the world. Stay. Keep doing ministry. I'm at work. So awesome. Let's pray and close, and then we're going to have communion uh, as we respond.